This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit 2njb.com slash donate. Recently, President Trump and his team unveiled the much-awaited deal of the century, a plan to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This immediately led to a media frenzy. Several obvious opponents, including the PA and the Arab League, rejected the plan flat out. Others joined in their rejection, claiming that it completely ignores the Palestinian side. On social media, a meme went viral comparing the plan to the one laid out at the Oslo Accords, claiming the two to be identical. We figured we should try and figure this out. What is actually in the plan? Is it fair? Is it feasible? Is it really the deal of the century? So to help us unravel all of this is a good friend of the podcast, Dr. Michael Oren. Dr. Michael Oren was deputy minister in the prime minister's office, member of Knesset in the Kulanu party, and served as the Israeli ambassador to the United States in the years 2009 to 2013. Oren also taught history at the Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University. So funny. I didn't, actually. Uh, I don't know where they get this stuff from. Every time. I actually didn't. I actually taught at Ben-Gurion University here, but okay. Okay. Uh, Uh, It's it's on Wikipedia. You know that. I know. Wikipedia is wrong. Okay. So (laughs) according to Wikipedia, you taught it (laughs) history. (laughs) You know. It's they're altering history. They're altering ironically, history. imagine that there's something inaccurate on <laughs> but, the internet. But you were yeah. you were a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. I, I was indeed. Okay. Okay. So yeah. he is the author of several books, both fiction and nonfiction, which we've discussed here on the podcast. We are honored to be joined by you to talk about the deal of the century. Great. So, thank you so Great. much. My pleasure to be here again once again. I hope I have the the record for you know for interviewing with you guys. And the, no, the, you the do, man who was do. called the, Israeli Dan Carl Dan Carlin. What's his name? Dan, Dan Carlin. Carlin. I love Dan Carlin. He's really everything Dan he's Carlin. done by one he's of terrific. our listeners. Yeah, he's terrific. Thank you. Oh, that's a great compliment. I love that. Maybe the best compliment I've ever got. That he's really Dan Carlin. Um, so what deal- do you say? Is it the deal of the century? <laughs> the good news is the century's pretty young. You've got a long way to go. <laughs> that's good. Uh, it is. If it a came deal. out in 1999. It would have been a different story. It's a deal, uh, and we are in a century. <laughs> yeah. So let's so. begin with this. Um, First of all, by a little bit, a bit of uh, bona fides here, um, I have a rather unique perspective on this because I think I'm one of the few people in Israel who has who has accompanied this process from its uh, from its origins in 1993, from the Oslo process when I served as an advisor to uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, up to the present, and I was involved uh, at a, at a very at an early stages and I think a critical stage in the formulation of the deal of the century of the Trump peace plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an interesting perspective. Um, let me begin by saying that you know there's much talk about the Israel lobby in the United States, but very people don't talk about the peace lobby. The peace lobby is very powerful, and it includes uh, think tanks, includes significant parts of the American administration, particularly the State Department, if it takes, yeah, university campuses, publications, and the media. All of them promote peace, but it's not just peace in a general sense, it's a very specific peace. Uh, the guiding principle is that everybody knows what a peace between Israel and the Palestinians would look like. Now, nothing, nothing could be further, further from the, clue, from the truth, because nobody knows what a peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians look like. There were certain sort of fundamental nostrums, um, which you had to subscribe to in order to be part of this lobby. One was 67 borders, sanctrosanct, 
the uh, the two-state solution would be based on the two-state borders. Uh, Jerusalem would be divided. Um, there would be a solution for the Palestinian refugee uh, problem. There would be a solution for Israeli Israel's peace uh, security needs. Um, that the Palestinians didn't recognize Israel as a legitimate uh, permanent state, no problem. That the Palestinians wouldn't give up on the right for refugee return, no problem. Uh, that the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority would continue to pay terrorists in jail uh, who had killed Jews and actually increase their payments per Jews killed, no problem. Uh, that they educated their youth uh, to murder Israelis. That was no problem. No uh, everything, problem. What do you mean by no problem? That was that. I'm saying this is what they they assumed that you could just sort of shrug this stuff off. Okay. And this was the peace lobby, and the extraordinary thing was that um, that this lobby remained so important, so powerful, so influential in Washington, and not just in Washington, in in European capitals as well, in spite of 25 years of consecutive failure. Yeah, it's a wonder we never. No, it's, it's, it's someone should write the book on this. Uh, on, 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 I, I actually know. Only I, we've known a historian <laughs> who writes books. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very depressing book, but it's amazing that when the Trump peace plan came out, all of the the sort of the guiding lights, the luminaries of this of this peace camp, uh, the peace lobby came out and attacked it, as if they could actually uh, summon a history of success. Which I can't. The history is of, of, of unremitting failure, um, which was always accompanied by an excuse. Only, if only we had two more weeks of negotiations, we could have closed right. the deal. Um, ignoring the fact that the Palestinians have rejected every two-state solution, going back to 1937, to the first Peel Commission report of the British, 1947 under the, the UN, and then, of course, uh, the Clinton plans, um, the Trump, the, uh, the, the, the George Bush plans under Edward Olmert, then Edward Barack and Edward Olmert. Uh, rejecting it, um, and usually, almost invariably, with one exception, 2008, rejecting it with violence and large-scale violence, which is also extraordinary. Extraordinary. So um, maybe you can delineate for us what's in this plan. Maybe we can break. So where's it, it different? Where's it different? Yeah. This, to my mind, and we'll get there are reservations, and I have key reservations. To my mind, this is the the most realistic plan I've seen since 1993. Since the signing of the Oslo Accords, this is the, the the plan that most reflects realities on the ground. Well, first of all, it reflects a, a, a significant shift of strategic thinking in the region. Uh, the Palestine issue, which used to be the sort of the the regnant issue uh, for the Middle East, the assumption was that if you solved the Palestinian issue, you could solve every problem in the Middle East. I never forget the the first National Security Advisor of President Obama, General Jones. Jim Jones would say, "If God came down and said, if I could, if if you could solve one problem in the world, I would say to God, the one solve my problem I wanted to solve was the Israeli-Palestinian problem, not hunger in Africa, okay, <laughs> not not disease, okay, not uh, no, but the Israeli-Palestinian problem because they sincerely believed this notion of linkage that if you solve the Arab-Palestinian problem, you solve the problem of Islamic extremism, you solve the problem of, of Iran, you solved all mm -hmm. these other problems. I mean, this was myth in high gear, in high gear. But I can't tell you how deeply seated these myths were. Um, the myths died hard. They died in the, in the Arab Spring of 2011. Um, they died through the achievement of uh, energy independence of the United States from the Middle East, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, there's, a, there's a series of milestones toward putting this myth uh, to rest. Uh, and now you have an Arab world which seeks an open alliance with Israel against Iran, 
which seeks access to Israeli innovation. Sunni Arab world. Sunni Arab world. True indeed. Um, a, 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 they seek access to Israeli innovation because so, they know that the era of uh, fossil fuels will come to an end and they have to be able to use their wealth in a way that can, can lead to development for their countries and we are the key to that. Mm -hmm. um, and they are unwilling, unwilling to let an unelected, unelected, Mahmoud Abbas is in the 16th year of his four-year Practically a dictator by now. He's, he's a, not just that, he's a corrupt dictator. This is a leadership that has stolen hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in foreign aid, especially American aid, from its own people. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and I got by the way that was also overlooked by the peace, <laughs> by by the peace lobby in the United States. Ah, Mahmoud Abbas, he's corrupt, but that's what we have. That's what we got, and in a way, it's 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 rather prejudicial, deeply prejudicial against the Palestinians. Well, what what do you expect from the Palestinians? They can do better, know better than this, and um, and so we're in a different place. So so the Trump peace plan acknowledges the fact that the. The geostrategic political, situ geopolitical situation has shifted, has changed fundamentally in the Middle East. Um, it understands that, that this administration has gained tr tremendous amount of credibility, uh, street credit, if you will, uh, in standing up to Iran, particularly the, the latest action of uh, doing away with Mr. Soleimani. It's extremely important for the peace. People in the peace camp don't understand if you want to advance peace, you cannot in the same breath support the Iran nuclear deal and support peace. Because nobody in the Middle East will trust the United States that upholds the Iran nuclear deal to, to be a, a, an honest broker. This won't. No, no one in the Middle East or the Israelis won't? Well, I think the Israelis and the, when I say the Middle East, uh, the, mm. the Syrians will trust them. <laughs> the Iranians will trust them. But I'm talking about well, Israel the and the Sunni Arab world ah, okay. will not trust an American leader who is um, reconciling at, with the Iranians and providing the Iranians directly or indirectly with hundreds of billions of dollars. No one's going to do that. Uh, um, and, 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 and that also wasn't internalized by, by this peace lobby. Mm -hmm. um, so as for the deal itself, realistic. There would be no realistic deal that could uh, demand the uprooting of tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of Israelis. There is no deal that would allow the Palestinians to retain security control uh, over Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, and that includes uh, control over airspace, control over um, over X-band, um, electromagnetic band, uh, control of the Jordan Valley. None of that was compatible with Israel's fundamental security needs. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, there was uh, no peace plan that was going to demand the redivision of, uh, of Jerusalem. It wasn't going to happen. On the other hand, there was no peace plan that you could advance that wouldn't provide a pathway to Palestinian statehood that wouldn't provide some type of territorial contiguity for the, contiguity for the Palestinians, um, semblances of sovereignty, uh, pride, uh, and economic development was very, very important, and but, some type of Palestinian capital uh, in East Jerusalem. So the, the plan the right itself return, is very, very realistic. Right of return was never in the question. So the right of return would, was, was going to be addressed by earlier peace, uh, including uh, peace negotiations that were uh, conducted by Ehud Olmert and by Sipi Livni, which provided for the return of, of several thousand Palestinian refugees mm -hmm. to Israel. But that would have opened the door. I think that would have been disastrous. Um, and this doesn't. And it, 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 it insists that the Palestinians recognize Israel as a permanent, legitimate uh, Jewish state endowed, the Jewish people endowed with the right of self-determination. Will they ever? No, probably not. I mean, it has been my experience. I, was, I participated in the last round of negotiations with the Palestinians. It was now 11 years ago. It lasted six hours. And in those six hours, gentlemen, I probably learned more than I learned in six years of university. And one of the things I learned was 
that the negation of the uh, existence of a Jewish people, the negation of a Jewish people that has that right to self-determination, is fundamental to Palestinian identity. It's, uh, it's worth mentioning when we hear mm. uh, two-state solution, when they say two-state solution— They never say two states for two people. Ever. Exactly. Ever. To them, it's one Palestinian and one state. Y- yet it's, to be conquered. No, it, it, is, it, it can be called Israel— but no, it's not. But the point is, it doesn't have to be Jewish, according and to them. And to his credit, I would say that President Obama also recognized this finally because he didn't start off there. He understood that that while United States and Israel said two states for two people, the Palestinians only said two states because they didn't recognize the Jewish people. So think this through to the end. Game it with me. You have two states. One of them is recognized as legitimate. The other has no legitimacy. It's transient. It's not a permanent state. So you'd never find, and I mean not one. Palestinian leader who would ever say two states for two people, who would ever say that the two-state solution was a permanent and legitimate solution, and you'd never find a Palestinian leader who would say end of claims, end of conflict. In other words, you reach a two-state agreement, and, who and then the, the conflict goes on. And a Palestinian who I never met or heard of a Palestinian who gave up the right of return. Or to it them, wasn't happen. It's, Again, it's, I don't want to belabor that, belabor that phrase, I but it think, was not going to happen. And I think, to me, the right of return equals my annihilation. Of course. That's uh, not that obvious to everybody. But that was just one aspect of it. It was also educating children. It was also not recognizing. Right, but this is the fundamentals. It's I also think, paying terrorists me. in jails. What's the message of paying in terrorists in jail? So uh, it's upholding uh, this, uh, an idea that, the, that, that terrorism, killing Jews, is essential for Palestinian identity. Now, so these were all non-starters. So in the, the uh, deal of the century, it addresses all these issues. It doesn't try to shrug them off as previous peace plans did. It takes them head on and said, okay, no right of return, no uh, funding terrorists uh, in Dale, no education to kill uh, to young people to destroy the state of Israel, um, an end to all that. And, and that is, that is cruel, crucial. That's why it's considered yeah. pro-Israeli, I guess. Yeah, and yet all of that press, how'd you, how'd you, what was the word you said? Bruhaha, the reaction to the... Uh, frenzy. Frenzy overlooked the very significant um, Israeli concessions that were made in the plan. So what did Israel concede? Territory in the Negev. Oh, well, let's get to that. First of all, land swaps. Mm-hmm. The notion to, that, that Israel would compensate uh, Pal- uh, the Palestinians for land that would be annexed in the West Bank with land in sovereign Israel. And I must tell you, from an insider's viewpoint, we rejected this wholeheartedly during the Obama years. Yeah. Okay? We presume it will never get to that, I oh. think. That's Who knows? The, I'm just saying the, the idea is there are new parameters. Because that's one of the last levels of the plan, right? One. But it's there, and we conceded it. Um, Israel conceded a connection, um, a rail connection or otherwise, between the West Bank and Gaza. That was far from a consensus issue among Israeli decision makers. We conceded the fact that the Palestinian Authority would ultimately return to governing Gaza. And that was a, a hotly contested issue among Israeli policymakers. Many people were very comfortable with the you know, divide and rule type of situation where you had uh, Hamas in the West Bank or another entity in the West Bank. Um, and Hamas in, the, in Gaza, another entity in Gaza, and another entity in the West Bank. It was, it was comfortable for the state of Israel not to have you know, a, a Palestinian entity on, on both to the east and the west of us. Um, many, many concessions. East Jerusalem concession. Um, the Palestinian state a huge concession for the uh, more extreme Israeli right. And I was shocked uh, at some of the um, expressions of uh, elation um, that followed in the immediate aftermath of the publication of the deal of the century by uh, settlers and other 
elements on the Israeli right. And I thought to myself, okay, this is going to end. Uh, they're going to wake up, you know, after a night of binging and wake up with a headache, and the headache's going to be the Palestinian state. And that's happening right now. Um, I don't know what would have happened if blue and white had succeeded in bringing the Trump plan to a vote in the Knesset, and prominent members of Likud and other right-wing representatives would have to get up and vote for a Palestinian state. That would have been very, very difficult. Um, so there are significant concessions in there, and uh, there are sticking points. Uh, there are 15 settlements that are sort of stuck in the Palestinian areas. Um, there's the question of annexation. And when the, the night of the, uh, the press conference, uh, I turned to my partner and I, I, said, uh, I said, oh, that annexation is not going to come about. Um, when now. It, not Ever? for a while. Not forever. Not forever. But now. Because the key to this whole plan is Saudi uh, acquiescence. And if the Saudis aren't on board, it, it probably won't, have, won't stand a chance. Mm -hmm. And if Israel were to turn around and annex large segments of the West Bank uh, the next day after the announcement of the deal, the Saudis would be frightened away. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, in Israel, some so people I was not surprised at all that uh, Jared Kushner and others uh, pressured uh, the Israeli government not to proceed. Here, with the some people said now or never. Like, let's do it right away. The momentum is in our side. Well, clearly, you know, there would have been short-term game. I don't know about the long-term game. I think there's a, there are many um, factors at play here, not the least of which is, is keeping a, a, a close and productive relationship with this administration, which may well, earn, may well win a second term. And then we have other issues at, at stake here, uh, particularly the Iranian Let's see issue. if there will be a, a Democratic candidate at all. Or because They've had some uh, technical difficulties, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I had a, um, I can't say I had a major role in the formation of this uh, policy, but I think I had a, a ultimately, in, in retrospect, an influential role. Um, I was called to the White House several times to discuss my ideas about peace. And I think there were two approaches that were internalized. Um, one was and this is going back several years to the first months of the administration, I said, basically, forget the Palestinians. Why? Not because I'm cruel or patronizing to the Palestinians. I realized that now for decades upon decades, the Palestinians were, A, incapable of signing on a dotted line, <laughs> and B, probably would never, be, never want to do it, and C, they didn't have a leadership that actually had the legitimacy to sign on a dotted line, even if they were capable and willing, because who was Mahmoud Abbas? Okay. Again, he's unelected. They won't even stand election for Northern West Bex. What does a signature mean on a piece of paper? So I, I said to the, the Trump team, I said, you know, any peace process that is predicated in advance on Palestinian acceptance is doomed for failure. It is. For the reasons we talked about, Palestinians aren't going to give up the right of return. They're not going to give up uh, the refusal to recognize the state of Israel. They're not going to do it. So you're basically starting off on a, on a, on a, on a no-win situation. So does um, that mean that this is just a statement on the no. American side? I said practically— you aim for 80% at least of Israeli pop, of Israeli public, and I think that's gotten that. And the other partner is the Sunni Arab world, in particular the Gulf countries. And if you convince them to get on board, then you create a situation where economic aid and investment is flowing into the West Bank. A, a, a maybe a younger generation of Palestinians sees that there's a that they can inv that they are invested in that they have a dividend from peace, and that uh, that they can maybe get rid of some of these corrupt rulers if they could. And um, and see that, that, that this offer provided a, a future for their children and grandchildren that otherwise they would not have. Okay? So it was a, a very practical approach. That's why I say this, they, that has been eternalized. The long game. I mean, that's the very, very long game. I, if, if aid and investment would start flowing tomorrow, it wouldn't be such a long game. It's a game that can start 
literally, you know, tonight. Um, again, but you have to have the Saudis on board. It'd really be. Very, but you're very talking humble. about the next. I mean, you know, raising the next generation to be conducive to peace. If people have to see that that there's a benefit, that there's an end, that 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 there's a horizon. Also, offering Palestinian statehood was a horizon. Okay? You strive for it. The second, um, the second issue I, I spoke about was based on an article I published some years ago in the Wall Street Journal called "The Two State Situation." Uh, I've since upgraded it to call to call it the uh, the two state reality, and it it's, it um, it was based on the rad- radical notion that the whole debate surrounding two states is actually a moot point, because there are two states. And anybody traveling on Israel's uh, number six highway, cliches, will see a big Palestinian flag flying there. There's kind of a government there. There's kind of a police force there. It collects taxes. It's in charge of its education, as we know, unfortunately, but it is. It's recognized by 130 nations of the world as a state. So this article argued that rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, you got something to build here. And rather than asking both sides to do things that they can't do, like redivide Jerusalem, like uproot Israelis from their homes, like forcing the Palestinians to, to uh, recognize the Jewish state, why don't we ask each side what they can do and proceed from there? So very realistic approach. And I think that the, if I would have envisioned the map of that article, the map looked very, very much like the Trump map, <laughs> very much like the Trump map, with some of the same provisions in it, with some of the same provisions in it. Um, so I, I, if anything, I have a sense of, uh, you know, I have a certain sense of accomplishment here. Um, I think it's a good plan. I have, um, both in my former diplomatic position and, and even after I got out of politics, have been meeting with um, foreign representatives, and I urge them, particularly the Europeans, not to reject it out of hand. I've, I've been in contact with um, advisors in the Democratic campaign telling them not to uh, reject the plan out of hand because there are you, – you can disagree with some things. You can say, oh, the – Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem should be bigger and incorporate more uh, Palestinian neighborhoods. You can say that, you, that uh, the Palestinian state should have somewhat larger borders. Um, okay, but, but don't, don't but don't don't reject out. it. There's there's so much to this plan that but is it's worthwhile. kind of an awkward situation. I mean, where we're trying to get everybody around mm-hmm. to accept this deal when we recognize the fact that the people on the other side of the table are rejecting, like. To say, but they were know, always going to reject it. That's the thing. The, the rejection was built in. But so the, you had the a thing, proceed, sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. The thing, if I understand the plan correctly, the beautiful yeah. thing about it is that the more they reject, the more we gain, because they can reject, but we can still do more and more steps on our benefit, right? Is that? Well, you, you are in this sense that, as with so many other areas, whether it be NATO, China. Um, other trade areas, uh, Tr- President Trump has changed the rules of the game. And he came into our issue, the Israel-Palestinian issue, and fundamentally changed the rules of the game. And what were they? One, if in the past um, Palestinian leaders left the table, as they did repeatedly, they got rewarded. They got more aid. They got a, an embassy in Washington. They got a flag on the embassy. Every time they walked away, they got a reward. Counterintuitively. Well, if you're a parent, you think it's stupid. It's like having your kid trash his, his room, and then you come in and give him $20. Is he going <laughs> to trash the room again? Yeah, he's going to trash the room again. But that's basically what they were doing with the Palestinians. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it does, it, it, I mean, Trump had yeah. that, that faculty of coming in. This is madness. He says, every time they leave the table, I'm going to punish them. Whether it's cutting off aid or dismantling UNRWA, 
you know, we celebrated the moving the embassy, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. We thought it was a great they gesture. But if you looked at what what President Trump was tweeting, he was tweeting, he says, I'm doing this not to reward the, Palis- the, the Israelis, but to, to punish the Palestinians for not coming to the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that principle, you leave the table, you get punished, is built in. Second issue uh, for you know Trump, the deal maker, is everybody who comes to the table has to make concessions. And look, we made concessions. I think I've made that point. We have made concessions. The Palestinians are going to have to make concessions, uh, which means that they're not going to get their maximum demand for a Palestinian state, which has absolute sovereignty on the 67 borders. Not going to get it. Okay. And the third principle, and this is a crucial principle, I think, is that if in the past parties, particularly the Palestinians, would reject an initial draft of a peace plan and say to themselves, oh, we'll wait for the second and third and fourth drafts because the drafts keep on getting better and better for us. Now, under Trump, every draft is worse. Mm. For them. For them. You eject one, for example, you're not going to get the same deal. For example, and, can you... I'll give an example. If you, know, you, you say, um, okay, you can start off with a, a Palestinian state that has a, a big capital in East Jerusalem. No, you walk away from it, you got to get a smaller capital. Now, you think, that, think like a businessman. This, mm-hmm. this is how businessmen think. It's the business model. It's not the diplomatic model. It's game theory. Yeah. It's, it, it's the way President Trump conducted real estate deals, which is, you know, hey, I'm offering you a deal. It's good for one day. You come back tomorrow, it's going to be a less good deal. So what are the and, chances that they actually, like, even if they are tiny, what are the chances the Palestinians pretty damn tiny. come around? Pretty tiny. Not this under this leadership. I would be very surprised. Um, but maybe some future leadership. Well, it doesn't um, mean we have to sit passively. Mm-hmm. And um, I know from dealing you know, there's a, there, there was a sense here that the, the Trump team was, was close to the Israeli extreme right in its, in its worldview, and it wasn't true. They, they cared very much about the future of Israel as a democratic and Jewish state and how to preserve that. And if you look at this plan, I think it goes a long way to, to realizing that goal. Mm-hmm. So like we mentioned before, if you hold, I mean, there was, this, there was this kind of meme going around where they would hold up the two maps, so the Oslo Accords and, and this map, and, and say, oh, you know, Rabin offered it, and he was— uh, Rabin you know, never had a map, I'll, I'll trust you. And I think that, so, to tell you the truth, this map yeah. looks like something that Yitzhak Rabin could have accepted. So yeah, so tell us kind of the difference of what's the, what the Oslo, Oslo Accords was, was offering and what this Oslo is. wasn't offered any maps. There was no maps. The okay. first maps come out with an agreement between Abu Mazen and, and uh, Yossi Balin, which looked, you know, not all that much different than the maps that were put out by John Kerry, um, you know, 20, 25 years later. Um, or the Geneva Nation that maps didn't look so much different than the, than the maps that were drawn by my friend David Makovsky at the Washington Institute. He had a series of maps, and later he went to work for John Kerry. Um, none of those maps bore any rela- any serious relationship to what was happening in, in, in reality. And that's just what was happening on the Israeli reality in terms of you know, the, the, the settler population, our security needs. Um, what can I say? Abu Mazen is alive today because of the Israeli army. We mm-hmm. kept him alive. What are we going to pull out? He'll well, be, we he'll be gone today. We also gained from the Oslo Accords uh, some yeah. things. We gained a Palestinian security apparatus, which cooperates with us, and mm-hmm. occasionally does a good job. We can't—another thing we could not concede in any agreement was the right of hot pursuit. That is totally in constant with the notion of a sovereign a, state, a country, but we couldn't give it up. Like in Fauda, if you see, if you exactly. have a terrorist in the territories, we go in, we get him. You know, the Palestinian Authority was not going to stop terrorists who were non-Hamas, mm-hmm. if they were Tanzim, if they mm-hmm. came from, from Fatah, 
weren't mm-hmm. going to stop them. We have to stop them. And but the fact that we, we can collaborate on getting in there with them sometimes, sometimes not. Okay, but we have to have the, we have to reserve that right. We have to mm-hmm. reserve the right to control the airspace. We have to ensure that the Palestinian state does not have the ability to sign uh, diplomatic agreements with foreign states like Iran. That's all we need. You know, mm-hmm. a, a strategic alliance between the Palestinian state and Iran. We can't have that. Now, none of this accords with the Weberian notion of a sovereign state. It doesn't. Uh, so you can call it a state, you can call it uh, autonomy expanded, but whatever you want to call it, and, I, and maybe they have to use, you know, there's, there's a rhetorical battle here because it's not, it's not a complete state, but you can't call it less than a state because you have to be able to offer something to the Arab world. Can we play a game in which we imagine they say yes, and we end up agreeing to a Palestinian state? Now, let's say there's a Palestinian state, and you do have the law of return to the Palestinian state, you right? Don't. To yes. the Palestinian state. You do not. They can't. It's when in the end of the, of the plan, when they have sovereignty in a state, you can't like tell them. Refugees from Kuwait and Jordan. Yeah, you cannot return. tell them not to bring. Anyway, I, I, one of my earliest involvements in the peace process actually precedes the Oslo Accord by almost a decade. I started in, in the 19, 1982 when I was an officer in the civil administration in the West Bank. And um, there was a plan that we advanced to bring in Palestinian refugees from the Lebanon War in 1982. And, and they completely turned it down. Uh, the leadership in Hebron, Nablus, they said, if you bring in these people, you'll have a, you'll have a riot here. Uh, so they're not about to absorb millions of refugees from the mm-hmm. Arab world. They're not. Uh, but um, in theory, you know, I, I think that that would not be allowed under this accord. Because it, it would hurt us. It's destabilizing. It's, 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 you, you, put, you wanted to uh, bring in you know, hundreds of thousands of, of so-called refugees. I have to say so-called refugees because mm-hmm. Palestinian refugees are the fifth only refugees. Generation. Who, fifth generation refugees. Okay. Um, you can't control who comes in there. Well, we'd have to. Di- ISIS or whatever. It, it'd be very difficult, very dangerous for us. So, so how, we're aware of that. Yeah. By the way, even under the Obama administration, we were very clear that there would not be a carte blanche for the return of refugees even to the Palestinian state. There'd be limits on that too, for that reason. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not suicidal. We're not su- that's all, we're not suicidal. When you say we, yeah. oh, there you, may be, there may be people, maybe certain people in, you know, in, in certain parties who are suicidal, but we are talking about suicide. And I, I, I hope... You understand that what I'm 40, saying 50 now is not... 40, 50% percent of Israelis are into that. Or suicidal. Into yeah. suicidal? Is that, yeah. is that a statistic? That's uh, a, is that, an is estimation. Educated um, estimation. That, you know, what I'm saying here is not left, right, up, or down. It's based on, um, you know, historical experience, imperative uh, evidence, and, and, and texts that I've viewed for the last almost 30 years. I don't think it's a matter of suicidal. I think it's just the fact that sometimes people don't necessarily have the foresight to see the consequences of certain decisions. So, you know, they, Definitely. they have their priorities. And I remember prominent Likudniks back in, well, actually from Kadima already, back in 2005 saying anybody who said that a, that a missile will fall from Gaza will, will hit Ashkelon is crazy, okay? Is insane, literally insane. Uh, oops. Got that yeah. wrong. So, that so I want to go back to the comparison yeah. of yeah. the Oslo to this, because mm-hmm. I think one of the points that's been shared around is the, the idea that Rabin offered this, these things, whether or but not there didn't. was a map. Yeah, whether or not, but no. the idea was that he offered the, these things. He, he put out a hand, and he was kind of you know uh, fried alive, and 
and BB makes the offer and he's kind of uh, glorified as the, you know, wonderful peacemaker. And I'm wondering if this was an easy move for BB or do you think that, like you mentioned before, concessions, he actually, was this an easy win for him or what, did he actually have to, you know, uh, I'm sure there were prolonged negotiations uh, behind the scenes. He, yes, he's taking a hit because he can't annex and he needed the annexation for the settlers and others who are opposed to the Palestinian state. So this was sort of composition, compensation for the Palestinian state. Yeah, okay, you're, you're recognizing this Palestinian state that may not come into being, but I'm giving you, you know, 30% of the West Bank tomorrow, Judea and mm-hmm. Samaria, with 85% of your population. In it. Um, that was a major compensation. It hasn't come about. Um, it's yet to be seen. I think having worked with the prime minister, I know that he tends to see the entire picture. That he's not just looking at this peace agreement. He's looking at his relationship with this administration and how they're going to advance on the, on the, uh, together in tandem on two of the, the, the paramount goals of the state of Israel, and that is opening, our relation, opening relations with the Arab world, establishing formal relations, particularly economic relations with the Arab world, and that's happening, and how we are going to counter the Iranian threat. And that, I think, is working. What, what are this, uh, realistically, what's going to happen now with the plan? Take us to the next year, two years. Well, again, I, I, I have to put myself in the position of someone like Jared Kushner, something that people on his team are going to say to themselves, okay, how do we move on this? The way we move on this is getting uh, the Israeli government to, ha- to sort of hold fire, hang fire on the annexation. We don't have a long time. Um, and uh, first of all, they are facing an election also in the United States. Let's not mm-hmm. forget they have their electoral schedule. Uh, we have to see who's going to win the Israeli election, what kind of government we have. Um, Benny Gantz, though he embraced the plan, has also qualified his embrace by saying he will work in tandem with the Jordanians and others. Now, the Jordanians are going to reject this, so it, 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 it's kind of, a, kind of an oxymoron saying, I'm going to accept it, but, work in tan- oh, but, but only if it works in tandem with the Jordanians. And um, they, the, the, the administration has to see who's going to win here. But I think, if, I think they move on. If the, someone uh, will ever. Yeah, if someone will ever. I think they move very much on the Gulf and Saudi uh, support for the plan and begin the first stages of economic assistance and open relations with the state of Israel because they also have to show the Israeli public that there's a dividend here. There's what to be gained. So let's, uh, um, we've talked a lot about the deal, but maybe like a rapid fire round of, uh, of political questions from, you know, yeah. around the world. We don't so have right much now, time. We have a, we have a couple of hours before the <laughs> Senate and the state yeah. uh, in the States votes on, uh, on impeachment, any thoughts on that? Is uh... I think in their heart of hearts, many of the Democratic leaders sort of regretted the fact that they had to go to impeachment. It became uh, politically impossible to say no to impeachment, but I don't think it, it advanced um, their cause very much. It was also very early. In other words, the, the vote on impeachment is happening so much in advance of, of November that people will be, want, will be apt to forget it by then. Um, and I don't know if it convinced all that many people who might have voted for President Trump but now won't because of the impeachment. Mm-hmm. Um, and what has it done? It may, it may look ineffectual. Um, uh, the, the, the Democrats have, um, have some serious difficulties. Um, you know, the, they, the Democratic Party has, has swung significantly to the left. Who will win? I don't know. I was very good. I, I must tell you, I, well in advance of 2016, I predicted that Donald Trump would not only be the, um, the, the Republican candidate, but that he'd win for the presidency. And I was sitting with a group of, of prominent Jewish Republicans in the Senate, 
and the Senate, in the Knesset, and I told them this, and there was a, a audible gasp <laughs> that went up, and I explained why, um, because uh, the debate in the United States is no longer between left and right, but between uh, establishment and anti-establishment, and President and Trump was the most anti-establishment figure you had. Um, I think it's still about anti-establishment, and that's why I think that Bernie Sanders has a serious chance of being the Democratic uh, candidate. And I, so I, I know I would insult him profoundly if I said that he is the most Trumpian of of the Democrats, and uh, he is the most Jewish of the Democrats. Well, yeah, you know the the the, the, the conventional <laughs> wisdom in 2016 was that there were three major candidates. It was Bernie Sanders, uh, Donald Trump, and Hillary Clinton, and only uh -huh. one of those candidates did not have Jewish grandchildren. Yep. <laughs> leave you to think about that. Yep. Uh, I'll leave you to think about that. He's Jewish. Um, and it's going to be a—that would be a major challenge for the state of Israel on multiple levels uh, were he to win. Um, but I think his, his, that he has gone this far as a 70-year-old uh, uh, Jewish socialist um, mm. is saying a lot about politics in America. Um, I just think that, that, uh, that politics on the Democratic side have become so fractured that uh, Democrats have to respond to 40 different ideas or constituencies. Some of them are irreconcilable. Yeah. Um, a good example of what happened with the, uh, the death of Kobe Bryant, where uh, you know, a woman reporter from the Washington Post came out and, and posted something about uh, his, his, the accusations of rape that were made against him some years ago, and she was threatened with, with, fight, with, with dismissal and excoriated and threatened for coming out against coming out and posting this. So Democrats have one hand have to um, respond to constituencies like, say, Black Lives Matter, but they often have to respond to the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And what happens if they're not reconcilable? Yeah. <laughs> Difficult. The Republicans have a much easier job. They don't have to reconcile so many um, conflicting, sometimes potentially conflicting uh, constituencies. Um, so it's difficult. And in order to be sort of a, a bona fide Democratic candidate, you have to subscribe to a number of, again, I don't want to belabor the term, nostrums. Of, yeah. of just of, of sort of a almost a, a catechism of beliefs, you have to do it on the Republican side too. For example, you know whether it's uh, you know pro-life or say pro-Israel or there are a number of, of, of issues there. Um, but somehow I think that they're much more easily easily reconciled than on the Democratic mm -hmm. side. Um, so to bring us back home, maybe for one last question: mm -hmm. What about yeah. the upcoming elections? Any uh, any so predictions? I'm, I'm, I serve as a as an analyst on a number of media outlets in the United States, and every week I'm asked that question. Every week I say the three words that no analyst ever wants to say: Fourth elections upon us. I That's know. four words. I don't know. I don't know. Oh. I don't think anybody knows. Anybody tells you? You know, I listened to Victor Lieberman today on the radio saying there won't be a fourth election, won't be a fourth election. I don't know if there's going to be a fourth election. I look now that after all of these very significant diplomatic achievements by Netanyahu, uh, the Trump peace plan, bringing Naamai Sahar home from Moscow, uh, possible relationship with the Sudan, Sudan yeah. which, which, by the way, in my way, is maybe the most significant of them all, because Sudan does is that the, really speak to the average Israeli? I mean, yeah. Naamai Sahar, yes. No, Naamai Sahar, yeah. But, yeah, but, but, it, it, but, but it's amazing. The Sudan is where all the missiles come from in Gaza. Yeah. That's where how yeah. they get the, also, the missiles they fire us in Gaza from Iran. They all get into also, Gaza from, through, through Sudan. You have Sudanese um, refugees or work immigrants. There's immense strategic benefits to this. If it happens, yeah. 
uh, all of this so far, according to the last poll I saw, mounted to a bump up of one seat for, for Netanyahu. Yeah, to uh, cancel that out, you the had big the problem, charges that were finally and, 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 and listen, brought But it's also them. early again. It's early. The big problem We'll remember this, this in two weeks in our news cycle, you know. Yeah. Is that Ben Greer, who's the extreme right party, yeah. he runs, mm -hmm. and he burns between one, one mandate and two mandates. And these are crucial. Also, when Bennett joined the right-wing party to the big right-wing party, he lost votes of... I think, of secular right-wing Israelis. That also, I think, is could be a mandate. And the, and so you have between came two out and three. And would, would not deny, the, would not desire the possibility, would not reject the possibility that he would join merits in a government. Yeah. Okay, that, the, yeah. I, there, there are a number of yeah. wild cards, but right now the blocks, the blocks, forget what the parties are, the blocks are neck and neck. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't see any major change there. It was my miss, hope. You don't miss politics? Do. So it was really? my hope that the Trump plan would serve. <laughs> the, would serve wait, the wait, 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 wait. You want to go back to that? Yeah. <laughs> Let me just, the last thought. And okay. that, it was my hope over the course of two years mm -hmm. that the Trump plan would serve as a glue for the formation of a national unity government. The, um, this, is, this is an extraordinary story. I don't know if you have time to hear it. Going back almost two years, I went to the administration and I said, listen, you know, you better put this down in the summer of 2018, because you got Ramadan in June, you got the Jewish holidays in September, and then we're going to elections. And there's this crazy chance that if you go to elections, we won't be able to form a government, in which case you're going to be put into the spring of 2019, all right? And then you're going to hit Ramadan, the Jewish holidays again, and then you're going to be in your elections. You're going to be in 2020. Little did you never, know. I never thought we'd go to third round of elections, but... It was my hope, even back in 2018, that this would serve as a way of bringing some of the Israeli center together around a peace plan. Uh, that did not happen, and I think that that, uh, that hope was really uh, put to rest by the indictments against Netanyahu, and it created a situation where blue and white could not join the government with an indicted prime minister. That, that was the timing there was absolutely crucial. Um, do I miss politics? Sure, I miss politics. Um, someone said, politics is a passion. It's also a bit of a, an addiction. But um, there's a deep satisfaction, you don't know, from, from service. It's uh, what people don't understand about, say, service in Knesset. And is, chilling in Florentine is also... Is... Yeah, that's what I do. I chill in Florentine. But um, <laughs> I live in Florentine in Jaffa, which is the coolest neighborhoods on the planet. But, um, you know, during, when you're not ridiculously voting till 3 o'clock in the morning on these filibusters. Uh -huh. You know how to say filibuster in Hebrew? Filibuster. 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 You are like helping citizens. Seat. Citizens are lining outside your door with all sorts of problems. And, uh, and there's a tremendous satisfaction. You could really help them. Um, and I miss that. I miss that, uh, that connection uh, with Israel. Um, and you don't have that sitting in great bars in Florentine. Not so there in the same might, way. There might be a day where we see uh, Michael Oren uh, on a ticket again? Might be. Never okay. say never. All right. Okay, and with that scoop, we can wrap things <laughs> right. up. What can we plug before we go? Okay, so in September, um, I have two books coming out uh, wow. before the end of 2019. Two. One yes, wasn't I, enough. No, two. I have a two book. Thing. <laughs> I tell you why. I, the short story is that the short version of this is that uh, under Israeli law, I was prohibited from publishing books, but not uh, prohibited from writing books. Yeah. So I get up every morning. I write. I still get up every morning, 530, and write. Um, the first book is coming out um, in September. It's called The Night Archer. And other stories. It's a collection of about 60 short stories, which will, how should I Amazing. say, will knock your socks off. That's awesome. Uh, unlike anything you've ever read. Some of them That's very incredible. Israeli, some of them not, very so Jewish. Some, some fiction. Knox is, well, I hope I'll talk to you about that uh, then by when it comes We'd out. Love, yeah, I'd love to, yeah, to have And, the, and the other book is... Uh, is a novel. Oh, uh, okay, great. It's, wow. uh, again, also a Jewish novel. It's called uh, To All Who Call in Truth. 
Amazing. So look it up, guys. And mm. if you want to have Michael for a book tour, yep. it's just, yeah, just hit it's him coming. up in America. I have a website, mm-hmm. um, Michael Oren, uh, com. Oren is O-R-E-N, guys. Yes, indeed, still. Okay, battery is lo- running low. We have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, jewishjournal.com, and Arutsheva, arutsheva.com. No, israelnationalnews.com. Uh, israelnationalnews.com. <laughs> and we accept donations. Please help us out. Go to twinjb.com slash donate and yes. help us. And that is it. Thank you so much, Dr. Oren, for Bekef. coming again. They say in Florentine, Bekef. Bekef. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.